0: Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. This is it. This is it. Here we are. Peace be with y'all. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Um, we are so glad that you're here this morning. If you take a moment to fill out the Connect card, uh, it's um, just a little uh, slip of paper that was on the inside of the bulletin you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, and that's just a good way for us to get to know a little bit about you. And And there's a, a space for prayer requests on the back so that we know how we can be in prayer for you. Uh, and that's not just for if you're new here, if you are a member here. Uh, that's just uh, a good way for the elders Uh, to be aware of how we can be continually praying for you. So if you've been at Veritas since the beginning, you remember here, please fill that out and let us know how we can be in prayer for you continually. Um, uh, We'd love uh, to be able to do that and count it an honor to be able to do so. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, actually I should say where we are. We're in Nehemiah 12, Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47. Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, there are white and blue paperback Bibles um, at the edge of each bench. Grab one of those and turn to page 231, Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47. And uh, once you get there, you can stand up and, and we're going to read God's word together. This is God's people gathering together to worship him and give him thanks for what he's done, to dedicate themselves and the wall and the city for his glory and for his purposes. Let's hear God's word. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophethites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, brought the, then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Heshea and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, and above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshena, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests and Eliakim, Maaseiah, Maniaman, Micaiah, Eloanai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shimeah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Maljah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away on that day. Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, And in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that the proclamation of your word would be anointed with the presence and power of your spirit. We want to hear from you. We want to sense your presence. We want our hearts to to rejoice in your presence and communion with you and because of your good gifts. Lord, but we need you. Even our, our gratitude and our rejoicing are gifts from you. And so we ask now that you would do a mighty work through this sermon and in the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me ask you a question. Do you give much thought, do you give much consideration to how you approach corporate worship on Sunday mornings? Or maybe a little more broadly, do you give much thought in consideration to this thing that we do every week at all. My assumption is, and it's an educated assumption, is that there's few of us who do. Um, That really in the daily and weekly scheme of things, uh, we're actually tempted to give little thought, little consideration to how we approach God in corporate worship and perhaps give little thought and consideration to corporate worship in general. And uh, that really is a, a huge departure from uh, the way God's people have approached worship and all throughout the Bible and throughout church history. Uh, the, the, the vast majority of Christians throughout history and still throughout the world view corporate worship as a, as a sacred event, uh, something that deserves our thought and consideration and time and attention. But it's very easy for us to just kind of keep it peripheral, right? It's very easy... For us to just kind of put it on the back burner, give it little thought, consideration, and uh, why is that well here 's how I think that happened. Um, I think this has subtly happened in our sort of Christian culture over the last couple of decades, and this is how I think that sort of subtly happened as as a sort of church culture. Uh, we have tried to correct the notion that our only duty as Christians is to simply show up at a building once a week to sing a few songs and hear a sermon. We've sought to, to sort of correct the notion that all we need to do as Christians is show up on Sunday and, and we're good. And no doubt, you know, there have been professing Christians who have sort of looked at things that way, and, and they show up on Sunday mornings and go through the motions, but during the rest of the week, there's little that would reflect uh, that they're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what the church has done and, 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 uh, is, is put a huge amount of emphasis on things outside of Sunday mornings, outside of the corporate worship gatherings. And we put a huge emphasis on things like small groups and programs like men's ministry and women's ministry and living the Christian life with, with believers, other believers outside of Sunday mornings. And, and slowly what we've started to say and believe is that Sunday mornings, they're, they're good as far as they go. But real discipleship, real Christianity, takes place in these other things. Therefore, we're more interested in, in these things and these ministries that take place outside of corporate worship. Sunday mornings can be really helpful, uh, but real discipleship happens during the week. Real discipleship happens in small groups and in parachurch ministry and in this ministry or that ministry. And that's, that's what's really important. So if I miss Sunday mornings, you know, I might miss some helpful things. I might miss some encouragement for, or a bit of Bible knowledge I didn't have before or something. But it's really okay because I get real discipleship in these other things. And I want you to consider this morning that that is not a mindset that's actually faithful to the Bible. Yes, we we you know we want to push back against the mindset of Sunday morning only Christianity. Uh, that's not healthy. And that's not what we're called to in the Christian life. And that's, that's actually not the Christian life at all right? But to devalue corporate worship is also not a biblical and faithful response to such a mindset. Like the entirety of the, the narrative thrust of scripture emphasizes the importance of God's people gathering together to worship him together. In fact, that's ultimately where we're headed at the end of the age. It's like, think about that for a moment. Corporate worship is where we're headed forever, And so we must strengthen and deepen our value and understanding of what happens when God's people gather together to worship him. And, and, and we've seen this. Uh, we, we've seen this understanding and value being emphasized in the book of Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah truly understands the value of and, 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 and understands the importance of the corporate worship of God's people. You may have noticed a big shift in the book of Nehemiah uh, several months ago when we started getting to chapter 7, chapter 8 um, of Nehemiah. The focus of the book shifted from being about the restoration of the wall, the, the rebuilding and restoration of the wall around Jerusalem, to the restoration of correct worship and, and, and uh, amongst God's people. And the narrative shift, uh, it shifted and focused and focused entirely on the corporate worship of God's people. And to remind you of what we've seen thus far, we're just gonna do a quick review. We've seen correct worship reestablished in Jerusalem. Chapter seven lists out the people of God who were gathered back into Judah from the nations and lists out you know, particular leadership roles like Levites and priests and gatekeepers and, and others who were called and set apart to lead in the worship of God's people. And then in chapter eight, We see a corporate worship gathering, a description of a corporate worship gathering. Uh, The public reading and preaching of the Bible is reestablished, along with corporate feasting and rejoicing and and the restoration of the practice of the Feast of Booths. In chapter 9, we saw this this practice of corporate prayer and corporate confession of sin reestablished. And the people confess their sins in prayer and in mourning. And then in chapter 10, we saw a covenant renewal ceremony wherein God's people corporately, together, communally committed themselves, recommitted themselves to God's covenant and purposes as revealed in his word. And then in chapters 10 and 11 and and 12, we saw this last Sunday, we saw this commitment to setting apart specific people to lead in the corporate worship of God's people. And not only that, but but also the giving of resources to those who lead in the corporate worship of God's people so that they could make a living in leading this in order to focus more intently on uh, the task of worship. And now here in chapter 12, we see God's people gather together corporately again to worship and dedicate themselves in the city walls to God's glory and purposes. And this is what, the story, this is, this is what the, the story of Nehemiah is putting an emphasis on in the latter half here, the, the faithful corporate worship of God's people being reestablished. And this really, chapter 12 here, is actually the, the sort of climax of the entire story. The, the climax of the entire story is a corporate worship event, the corporate worship of God's people gathering together to glorify God and enjoy his presence and communion with him. And, and, and so Nehemiah is emphasizing faithful corporate worship being reestablished in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, you know, Nehemiah is concerned about other things too. He's not just concerned about corporate worship. You know, going back all the way to, to chapter six, we see Nehemiah con- concerned with, you know, community life and, and, and caring for the poor and living lives of, of justice and holiness and everyday life. However, Nehemiah sees this as being inseparably connected to the corporate worship of God's people, and we should as well. And so we, for- we focused a, a lot in the last several weeks about what corporate worship is as we've looked at chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and now 12. But as we explore chapter 12, I'd like for us to consider not only what corporate worship is here, but also the the attitudes and dispositions of our hearts as we approach corporate worship. Are are we giving corporate worship the, the, the thought and consideration that God's word would have us give? When we come together on Sunday mornings, what are our atti- what's the disposition of our hearts like? Are, what, what are our attitudes like when we come? Are we cold? Are we cynical? Are we unprepared? Are we only looking for, for what we might get out of it? These are important questions. And Nehemiah 12 provides a, a, a wonderful picture of what it looks like to approach corporate worship in a God-honoring way. First, we see the people prepare for corporate worship. They come prepared. The people come prepared for corporate worship. Look at verses 27 to 30, and then particularly at verse 30 there. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So what we see in, in these verses, in verses 27 to 30, we see that there was a great deal of preparation that went into this, uh, for, for this worship gathering. They gathered the leaders and the singers and the instruments. And, and even more, they participated in the ritual purification that such a gathering called for. Uh, the priests and the Levites purified themselves and the people and the gates and the wall. Now, Nehemiah doesn't give exact details regarding uh, what they did for this ritual purification. However, based on, on uh, other passages of Scripture that, that describe ritual purification, passages like Exodus 19 and Leviticus 16, we can assume that it involved water in some way. Uh, they probably, or perhaps, went under some, some form of uh, baptism. Maybe they washed their clothes. Uh, they, they probably sprinkled water on the wall and the gates. Uh, It probably included uh, fasting and animal sacrifice and and probably even refraining from intercourse. Uh, and, And the purpose of these ceremonies was to symbolize that we can't come into God's presence as we are. In and of ourselves, we are not worthy to come into God's presence. We're not worthy of his welcome. We're not worthy of communion with him. We are unclean in and of ourselves, and so we need purification. Furthermore, these ceremonies symbolize the cleansing that Jesus would later bring. Okay, so the the point of these ceremonies was not to actually make God's people pure, to make them worthy of coming into his presence. Uh, That song we often sing, Only Your Blood, You know, it it, it makes this point very well. In the last verse, we often sing, no bleeding bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest, no running brook, no flood, no sea can wash away the stain from me. Only your blood is enough. Christ's blood makes us clean and Christ's blood alone makes us clean and acceptable to God. See, Jesus, who was worthy, was treated as unworthy on the cross so that we would be counted as worthy. He was clean, but he was treated as unclean, and he was rejected by God as unclean. He was pure, but treated as impure, all so that we would be counted as clean and pure in God's sight, and so that we would receive the welcome of God, so that we could come into God's presence and commune with him. However, there's another point of application we need to consider here, and it's this that we ought to prepare our hearts to encounter God's presence in corporate worship. You know, Through faith in Christ, we are forgiven and counted worthy and, and, and made clean and given the gift of the welcome of God. Our position is that of being counted worthy and that position never changes because it's based solely on who Christ is and what he's done for us. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. It's a complete and total gift. But still, our hearts, inwardly, we're not always ready to receive from him, are we? Our hearts are, are often distracted by other things. Our hearts are, are distracted by, by worldly comforts. Our hearts are divided in their love. We run after worldly comforts and security. We search for significance and, and meaning and money and sex and power. We look for satisfaction in things other than the one true God. Therefore, we would do well to prepare ourselves, to focus our hearts. We ought to seek to be undivided in our affection for God when we come into his presence so that we can properly receive from him and commune with him. We should lay aside everything and anything that would weaken our communion with him. Consider, you know, the prayerful preparation for worship that the Israelites took here in contrast to the often flippant and casual way we approach worship today. Israelites here in Nehemiah 12, they they had a deep appreciation for God's holiness. They had a deep appreciation of their own unworthiness in and of themselves. They knew that you don't just waltz into the presence of the holy and transcendent and perfect God of Israel. He's the great I am. Your reverence in his presence is unacceptable. We ought not to, to approach God as if he's lucky to have us. Do you approach God flippantly without giving him the reverence due his name? Particularly in in, in the context of corporate worship, since that's what they're participating here. Do, Do you give much thought to how you approach God in corporate worship? Do you take time to prepare your heart to hear from him and receive from him and commune with him when we gather on Sundays? If you're not quite sure how to do that, let me offer a few suggestions. You know, we don't go through the ritual washings. We don't, uh, you know, we don't offer animal sacrifices. If you're doing that, come find me after the service. Let's talk. Um, But here's a few things that you can do. First, you can pray. Uh, Perhaps the morning of, or if you have young children, and Sunday morning is just always a disaster, um, which, oh my goodness, Sunday mornings with young children for some reason. horrible. Um, But if Sunday mornings are a little too crazy, uh, Sunday or Saturday evenings might uh, be better. And just take a few moments to pray. Sometimes I like to do what's called the the prayer of examine. Um, In the prayer of examine, you know, there are certain prompts Uh, that you'll uh, you'll go through um, in in terms of like trying to remember what's happened over the last 24 hours or over the last week is is kind of how I like to do it. Take time to consider God's good gifts for which you can be thankful. How has God blessed you and and what sort of good gifts has he given you? How has he provided for you? What joyful moments have you experienced? And then you simply give God thanks for those things. Also, take time to consider sinful attitudes you've had or sinful actions in which you've participated. What sort of sinful motivations did you have or even the the seemingly good things you've done? And confess those things to the Lord. Spend time giving thanks. Spend time time in confession. Also take time to consider ways that others have sinned against you. Is there anyone that you need to talk with? Is there anyone that you need to, to, to confront? Is there anyone that you need to make things right between the two of you? Offer those things to the Lord. Sometimes I'll even just take a text of Scripture like Galatians 5.26, the fruit of the Spirit, and I'll measure myself against it. Could, could, you know, I'll ask, it? could I be described as loving? Could I be described as joyful? Could I be described as peaceable, as patient, etc.? If not, then, then I need to confess my sin and do business with God. We need to take time to pray in preparation. Next, I would, take, I would say take some time to read the Bible. You know, in in, in your bulletin, uh, we provide the scripture text for the upcoming week every single Sunday. So next week, you know, you've seen the bulletin, Nehemiah 13 is next week. We also put a worship guide up every Friday the upcoming Sunday gathering. Use that. Read the scripture text uh, that, that we're going to be in uh, individually or as a family throughout the week. If you have time, you're able to. Listen to the songs that we're going to be singing and, and sing them yourself. Think about the lyrics. Look at the scripture readings we're going to be doing. Pray, read, come prepared. The Israelites came to corporate worship prepared. They carefully prepared for worship, and we can learn much from this. Come prepared. And if you do come prepared in the ways that we've mentioned, you'll also come with gratitude. The Israelites here came with gratitude as is made evident by the way they gave thanks. Look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 31, then I brought the the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. In verse 38, he says about the other choir that, that he appointed, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens and the broad wall. And these these two choirs, they they head in opposite directions from the same point, and they walk the perimeter of the wall in the city, singing and surrounding the city with, with sounds of songs and thanksgiving. Why were they doing this? Because of the great things that God had done in their midst. They were giving thanks because of all that God had done in their midst over the last several decades. His great works caused them to be filled with gratitude, which moved them to express their gratitude with uh, prayers and songs and sacrifices of thanksgiving. He had brought them back from exile. He had restored and rebuilt the temple in the city. He had sent Nehemiah from the king's right hand to rebuild the wall. God had been at work mightily in their midst, and so they were thankful. This is obviously timely uh, for for this particular season. We're going to be celebrating thanksgiving this upcoming Thursday, you know, Thanksgiving is is one of my favorite holidays for a number of reasons. For one, there's no pressure uh, surrounding you know gifts, the topic of gifts. It doesn't matter that you're too broke to to buy everyone in your extended family a gift. It's also not overly commercialized, and the food. Uh, my goodness, I love pie. I love pie, and even the vegetarians can enjoy pie. Everyone gets in on Thanksgiving. It's a great holiday. But one of my favorite things about Thanksgiving is the emphasis on giving thanks. Like, I, I need that emphasis in my life. Now, around this time of year, the, the constant bickering and complaining on social media is interrupted with just a few people saying what they're thankful for. Good for you, people who do that. Thank you. We really appreciate you. So tired of, of hearing the, the complaining and endless complaining. Thank you for just saying thank you. We like to do this thing in my family where we just go around the table and take a few moments for, for people, if they want to, to just say what they're thankful for. Instead of grumbling about how horrible our lives are, about how horrible the government is, about how slow the Wi-Fi is, about how the world is ending, we just take a day to be thankful instead of miserable. It's great. I should probably say, full disclosure, I am the worst at this. Like, I, I deeply struggle with being cynical. I deeply struggle with grumbling. I deeply struggle with discontentment, all of which are the exact opposite of gratitude, the exact opposite of of being thankful. Like, you've probably noticed this about me if we've spent much time together, and perhaps you struggle, like me, with cynicism, with grumbling, with discontentment. And here's one thing I found you can't be cynical and thankful at the same time. The same is true of, of grumbling and discontentment. You can't, be, you can't be grumbling and giving thanks at the same time. You can't be thankful and discontent at the same time. These, they cancel one another out. One will ultimately uproot the other. They can't coexist. And so we've actually implemented this thing in the green household that whenever uh, one of us cynical complainers start grumbling, uh, when someone in our family starts to whine or grumble, express discontentment, we actually ask, what's something you're thankful for? So perhaps one of the things you can do to prepare for corporate worship every week is to simply come up with a list of things you're thankful for. Saturday evening, Sunday morning, or yeah, Saturday evening, Sunday morning before coming to corporate worship, just simply list out things that you're thankful for. What are the good gifts that God has given you? And if you do, I I guarantee that the worship worthy things in your life vastly outnumber the wine worthy things of your life. I guarantee that the things for which you can be thankful exponentially outnumber the things that cause you grief. If if you have trouble believing that, let me just refresh your memory with a few things here for which you can be thankful. I I have a few passages of scripture just listed here that that should cause you to be thankful. If you're looking for reasons to be thankful, you're not sure that there are any, here are a few. Colossians 2.13, God has made you alive in Christ and forgiven all of your sins. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will, it's a promise, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need supplied. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Hebrews thirteen five. Christ will never leave you or forsake you. Ephesians 1, 5, God has predestined us in eternity past, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, God has made propitiation for your sins. Literally meaning, Christ has completely absorbed the wrath of God and therefore removed it from you. God has no wrath for you, only love and affection. Revelation one five. Christ is making all things new. Revelation 7, 17, God will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. Matthew 28, 20, Christ says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Revelation 3, 11, 22, 7, 22, 12, 22, 20, Christ is surely coming for us soon. And we could go on and on, guilt drowned in the blood of Christ, covered with Christ's perfect righteousness. We will receive resurrected bodies on the last day. We're going to reign and rule with Christ for all of eternity in a new heavens and new earth, and on and on it goes. You see, Just as the Israelites, Nehemiah 12, have more than sufficient reason to be moved with gratitude because of God's grace, because of his mercy, because of his great works, they gave thanks. And just as they have sufficient reason, so do we. We have reason to come into God's presence with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Every Sunday morning should be a small-scale Thanksgiving celebration. furthermore, when we come to corporate worship, we come to rejoice. We see God's people here rejoicing in in verses 40 to 43. So both choirs, they gather together in the temple, they Go around the, the perimeter of the wall of the city, and then both choirs end up in the temple together, and there they and all of God's people lift up their voices in joyful singing. It says, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests with the trumpets and the singers sang, and, and they offered great sacrifices, verse 43 says, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. A lot of joy. I don't miss this. There's a connection here that Nehemiah is making for us. The place of God's presence. They arrive in the temple, the place of God's presence, and there they rejoice. This is a connection the Psalms make very explicit. Look at Psalm 1611. In your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures evermore. In Psalm six: you make You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 95.2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Psalm 102, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. What this is communicating is that God's presence causes God's people to rejoice with God's joy. His presence brings joy. And particularly, this is why singing is so important for Christians. I have no patience for people that don't like singing. Those who experience communion with God, those who come into his presence, can't help but sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. It's it's often been said that the Christian faith is a singing faith. James Montgomery Boyce, he continues along that same line of thought. He put it best. He wrote this in in his book on Nehemiah. He states, you know, this is not true of other religions. Many use repetitive chants, and some clergy sing. But generally, the religions of the world are grim things. Christians write hymns, courses, oratorios. Why is this? Obviously because Christianity itself is joyous. It is a response to the great acts of God on our behalf, particularly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which secured our salvation. That's why we sing. That's why the Christian faith is a singing faith. We sing because God has made... We sing because just as God had made the people of Israel rejoice with great joy, you see in verse 43, he has made us rejoice with great joy. Knowing God, being welcomed into his presence, the coming of Christ, our Emmanuel, being filled with the presence and person of the Holy Spirit, having communion with God through Jesus Christ, it should make us sing loudly. It should make us sing so loud that the neighbors are annoyed. Do you sing like that? Do you, do you sing like that? Do you sing loudly? Do you rejoice? Well, I'm, not, I'm just not really an expressive person. I don't really lift my hands or sing or do stuff like that okay, you know, that might be true of some of us. Some of us are not very expressive people, but I think often that's just a poor excuse. You find yourself being expressive when you're watching a stupid football game? or I don't know if it's not football. It's something else. Knitting or family or work, your job, video games. I don't know. Do you find yourself expressively rejoicing over things, but not in worship, not over God, not in his presence. Maybe that should indicate to you where your loyalties and affections lie. Or maybe you just say, in response to the question, do you sing like that? Well, I don't really care for the songs we sing at Veritas. It's not really my style. I like Slayer and death metal or something. You know, I found that people that are captivated by Jesus are easily edified. Generally speaking, the people who have problems, serious problems with music style and worship or things like that, they're just cold and hard-hearted. They're not captivated by Jesus. People who are captivated by Jesus are easily edified. If you're not rejoicing in worship, if you're not singing your heart out in praise and glory to Christ in worship, I, w- I would just ask you to consider if you're cold-hearted toward Christ, if you're cold toward him, because people that are captivated by Jesus Christ, they rejoice. People that are captivated by Jesus Christ sing, as Derek Thomas so wonderfully put it in his commentary on this passage, he says, renewed hearts are difficult to hide we come to worship to express our joy in God's presence we come to worship and rejoice and lastly we come to worship to give we come to worship to give our passage ends with verses 44 to 47 on that day the men on that day men were appointed over the storerooms the contributions the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the levites according to the fields of the towns For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They rejoiced over these these people who were using their gifts to build up the people of God, to to serve God and his people. They're rejoicing over this. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. They came to give. There's two senses, I guess, in which we could say that the people of God were, were giving here. First, it's obvious that the people of God were giving financially. Financially. Here, The the gathering of worship that they participated in on that day moved them in their hearts to then commit to giving generously to the ongoing worship of God's people. And of course, we've noted several times throughout the series, God's people are called to financially support the worship of God amongst his people. But there's another sense in which I want us to understand the giving of God's people here. I want you to notice that God's people, they use their gifts to serve and build up his people. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, those who financially supported them, they all used their particular gifts to support the mission and worship of God's people in Nehemiah 12. Perhaps you remember some time ago, we we, uh, had uh, spent some time in 1 Corinthians 12, and we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that each person in the body of Christ is given a gift or gifts of the Spirit in order to build up the body of Christ. We're all, each and every single one of us, we're given specific gifts and abilities and perspectives which are for the common good of the local church. You know, the previous three points were really concentrated very much on the vertical aspect of worship, but this is more getting at the horizontal aspect of worship. We gather on Sunday mornings and we don't do so as a crowd of individuals with an audience of one, we gather as a body, as an organically united community that shares a central nervous system and we're members of that body who contribute certain gifts and abilities and perspectives. And so can I encourage you, please use your gifts to serve and build up the body here at Veritas. You know, one of the things I've noticed over the last several months is that we have multiple people who serve in multiple ways here on Sunday mornings. We have folks who it seems like they're serving every single week, doing something in family ministry and hospitality and music and gathering ministry and all of it. And so please, if you're not currently serving regularly, monthly on Sunday mornings, if you're a member here, please do so. Please consider using your gifts to build up the body here. We've we've obviously preached through several very long lists of names in the book of Nehemiah. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've had lots of just long lists of, of names over the last 18 weeks. And I know it can be awkward and kind of hard to see the relevance. and It's really hard to preach. But one of the things that we can take away from those long lists of names throughout the book is that the rebuilding of the city didn't take place because of an impressive few. You know, the Nehemiahs and the Ezras, they're impressive and they're mentioned quite a bit and and all that. But we should recognize that the city was rebuilt because God used a whole lot of ordinary people who who didn't play like huge roles, but they played their own small parts and used their own gifts to contribute. There's, There's a whole lot of people in the book of Nehemiah mentioned Listed out in this book who are ordinary forgettable folk like you and like me who did the work And that's what it takes for the mission to move forward Those are the people that god works through to continue the worship and mission of his people Therefore when you come to corporate worship come to give you matter and your contribution matters Come use your gifts to serve and build up others Come prepared, come with gratitude, come to rejoice, and come to give. That's what it looks like. And that's how we ought to, to approach corporate worship in a way that honors our God and King. We need to understand that we not only ought to, it's, it's also a get-to. You know, the the, the command in Hebrews 10, 20, 25 to not forsake the, the gathering of God's people— It's not just a command, it's also an invitation. Because we're not the only ones who come to corporate worship to give. God shows up to give. His presence is here, and he's here to give gifts. Gifts of assurance, gifts of conviction, gifts of of comfort. He comes to give his people peace and conviction and communion and a multitude of gracious gifts that abound forth to us in Jesus Christ. Truly, he is the chief actor in worship in the corporate worship of his people. He is the God, as verse 43 tells us, he is the God who makes his people rejoice with great joy. You know, and that, that, that text doesn't mean that God is like, you better rejoice down there. You, like he's forcing them to rejoice. It means that his presence, his gifts, communion with him, made his people so incredibly happy that they just burst forth in song. That's ultimately why we gather in corporate worship because God meets us here and he satisfies us with his soul-satisfying presence when we worship him in faith and with his people. So really, the invitation to approach worship in a God-honoring way is an invitation to have your soul satisfied in the riches and unending beauty of Christ. We come to worship. We come to corporate worship together to come to him. Let's pray. Father, would you satisfy our souls with your soul-satisfying presence? Lord, would you make us rejoice with great joy? Would your presence make us rejoice with great joy now? Would we, as we're preparing to go from here, go forth as people who rejoice with great joy? Would we be marked as a people who are joyful? Now, I don't know so often, I I, I don't think I could be described that way, as a joyful person. But your presence brings joy. Lord, would you you help us? We want to know you. We want to commune with you. We want to hear from you. We want to sense your presence. We want to be formed into people of gratitude and, and joy and thanksgiving. And so would you meet with us here? Would you meet with us now? And transform our hearts. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection before approaching the Lord's table.